Now, uh, what's... Oops. Um, it was Billy Carson. Trump speech gets booed. Over 40 and don't have life insurance. Job Waco speech got food and everybody left early. <laughs> so, folks, as we explored earlier today, even into the run up to the event, you knew it was going to be really bad. Old Donnie holding his rally in Waco, you knew that it was going to be a monument to violence. But what you didn't necessarily expect is that the crowd hated the speech. I have never seen a Trump crowd more rejecting a Donald Trump speech. First of all, the crowd wasn't nearly as big as they expected it to be. They could have had way more people, and they failed to pack it in, and the crowd was leaving early. But what's very, very evident is they utterly rejected Trump. For one big reason above all, he continues to make the speeches about him and his own grievances, and not at all about what he would actually do to improve the lives of the American people. And even his cult is getting sick of it. He starts with his grievances about the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court is afraid, just like Republicans are afraid, to do something about what has happened. And they have to fight. The Supreme Court didn't have the courage to right the wrong of the 2020 election. They knew what was going on. Tax returns were always considered sacred. Lawyers, in their own way, if you can believe this, were considered sacred. Today, lawyers go before grand juries all over this place. If they happen to be lawyers representing Republicans, and they treat lawyers like they're criminals. It used to be if you had a lawyer, the lawyer was somebody that was very much considered from the standpoint of what we're talking about above reproach. Now they get thrown in with everybody else, and it's a very unusual situation that's taking place. And again, legal scholars can't believe what they're witnessing. Again, this is a Supreme Court that's two-thirds conservative, one-third Trump appointed. Like, the, the, the issue here isn't that the court's against you. The issue, as I've said before, is that your cases are so bad, they have no choice but to go against you, right? Like, the Supreme Court likely would bail out Trump if it was on the fence. Like, if there was a case where there was a real debate, they would lean towards helping him just out of ideology and partisanship. They'll never admit that's the reason, but they would. But they're not going to utterly humiliate themselves just to help Donald Trump. They only do that when they can pass a real thing. Like, they'll, they'll do awful stuff to pass a ban on abortion or take away abortion rights or something like that. But they'll never do it just to help Donald Trump. And he doesn't seem to understand that. And already you can tell the crowd is pretty sick of this. But then he spends his next little bit attacking Stormy Daniels. You know, uh, Marjorie is here, truth to vote. And they found at least five million instances on tape. And the courts didn't want to even look at it. The District Attorney of New York, under the auspices and direction of the Department of Injustice in Washington, D.C., was investigating me for something that is not a crime, not a misdemeanor, not an affair. I never liked horse face. I never liked it. I never, it's just not, it's terrible. That wouldn't be the one 
is no one. We have a great first lady. Like, it's ridiculous, right? It's like, like, first of all, this is very much to Melania. Like, I, my wife is great. The person I, I slept with, but I say I didn't slept, uh, sleep with, uh, is awful. But, like, let's be real. Like, he's spending time up there. Again, there's no policy here. He's whining about the hush money he had to pay. Right? And he's calling this woman a horse face, which is just vile and mean and misogynistic. But the crowd isn't even into it. Like, they're standing there. They're standing there all day, a lot of them, to wait to get in. And are saying to themselves, what the hell am I here for? Like, why is this man wasting my time? Like, I'm just a regular person. I have concerns. And while you and I very much disagree with the vision Trumpers have for the country and for the world, the reality is they have real concerns. And they want someone to at least pretend to alleviate those concerns. And Trump isn't doing that right now. He does it again when he attacks Michael Cohen. They took the word of a proven liar, a convicted felon, and a disbarred lawyer, all the same person, believe it or not. You wouldn't think they could go to one person, it would be three, four, five, over some of the most respected and prestigious people in the country and in New York City, some of the most respected lawyers testifying against. They looked at all of these pages of documents, they went back to old cases that were summarily rejected by many prosecutors, highly respected prosecutors, Democrat prosecutors all. You know, like, he's, he's really trying to suggest there that Michael Cohen, like, that, that uh, the, the case is shot because the Michael Cohen is so uniquely compromised. But again, what everyone's been noting is that, one, the crowd hates it. They are disgusted by all of this, but also, like, you, you, you and Cohen were, were buds for years. Like, insofar as Michael Cohen was a scumbag, and he was, I don't think he, he is, you still are, he no longer is. Insofar as he was a scumbag, he was a scumbag like you, and for you, in the employment of you, loyalty to you. Everything about Michael Cohen that was wrong you know, is, is, is in part because of you. And so that's not going to work as a credibility argument because when it comes to many things about Michael Cohen, you could love him or you can hate him. The man knows one thing above all, and that's where all the Trump skeletons are buried. And here's again where Trump, again, he... he you would think this is Jesus on the cross that Donald Trump feels. And that's why everything like this comes off as whiny and even the crowd doesn't buy anymore. And yet, after going over 11 million pages of documents, I built a great company. They've got nothing. They've got nothing. Think of it. 11 million pages. And my tax returns on top of it, and they're a big return. It probably makes me the most innocent man in the history of our country. Friends of mine say that. He's thinking, I'm the, I'm the most innocent man ever. I'm the most persecuted man ever. Uh, all of this is terrible. No one likes me. All of this. And, like, what's the crowd supposed to do but, like, just be disgusted by all of it? Again, like, they're going to keep showing... I don't know why. It's like Maybe it's just because it's a thing to do. But, again, it's... Wh wh what are you doing about the people? 
Like, Donald Trump isn't even pretending tonight. Like, normally he pretends and does the whole, you know, the reason I care so much about uh, them attacking me in court isn't because it's about me. It's actually because it's about you, and I'm just the last line of defense. And if they can take down a loser ex-president, what do you think they can do to some working-class or middle-class MAGA supporter? And the answer is they already do all of these things to regular people every single day by the thousands or tens of thousands. Because when regular people break the law, they go to jail. And when regular people don't break the law, unfortunately, sometimes they still go to jail. But, you know, you, you don't because you're rich and wealthy and well-connected, former president, all of that. The point is, none of it rings decently. And here's another example, and this is one that people really pointed out as yet maybe the, the biggest absolutely insane moment. Makes sense. He said, let's go get Trump. They even had numerous prosecutors who resigned because I was being treated unfairly. That made me feel so good when I heard that. Think of it. People actually in a Democrat area, Democrat office, they resigned. Did you know that? They resigned. A lot of them resigned the office because they said, you can't treat a man like this. He didn't do anything wrong. But the two lead prosecutors, absolute human scum, won a Hillary Clinton lawyer from a Hillary Clinton law firm. Do you believe that? How about a guy who represents Hillary Clinton? He's in a law firm that represents Democrats. It's headed up by Chuck Schumer's brother, this law firm, Robert Schumer. Think of this. Now, think of this. And he calls up the prosecutor. He, think of this. He calls up the district attorney. Drinking warm water before bed shrinks a swollen prostate overnight. Thousands of men are regaining control of their bladders every night as they sleep by adding one unusual ingredient for a glass of warm water before bed. If you're frequently struggling with urgent toilet trips, a weak flow, or difficulty starting or stopping urination, then pay close attention, because Harvard scientists recently discovered this frustrating condition has nothing to do with hormones, genetics, or age, and in fact is completely reversible. They found that the real root cause is a mineral buildup coating the wall of the bladder, which over time spreads into the prostate gland, resulting in the humiliating growth cycle that affects so many men. Most importantly, these same researchers revealed how we can break down this toxic buildup just by following a simple bedtime routine, which quickly clears out the prostate and restores normal function once and for all. In fact, astronauts have unknowingly used a similar protocol for years to maintain a strong flow when peeing in zero-gravity conditions. It's been a huge breakthrough, with over 157,000 men now finally being able to pee freely, fully empty their bladder, regain their libido and sleep soundly through the night after struggling for years. Tap watch now below to skip straight to a free special video and see this 10-second daily ritual that can start easing the discomfort within the first few days. Remember, this has nothing to do with expensive medications, sore palmetto, or invasive procedures. Many guys are even reporting relief from their symptoms within the first 24 hours. Oliver, a 58-year-old from Atlanta, says his own doctor started using this method himself after seeing the improvement he'd had in only six weeks. This is your chance to join thousands of men who've changed their lives by regaining their control and their dignity after suffering for years. But without this, you may never be free from the nagging worries about infections, kidney health and BPH, all while paying out a fortune on ineffective medications and their unwanted side effects. Despite this being such a significant breakthrough, the CEOs in the pharmaceutical industry have been fighting to get this video taken down because they fear the impact it could have on their huge yearly profits. 
So tap the blue watch now button below before it's too late and see exactly how you can start using this method at home right now. I get asked all the time, Dr. Paris, what food should I eat to heal my arthritis? Well, what? He said, I'd like to come and work for free. I'm going to leave. I represent Hillary Clinton. I represent the DNC, the Democrat Party. I don't even know if you know this. And he said, I want to work for free. He's a bad guy. Man is a bad guy. I want to work for free to get some. And they bring him into the office. He becomes the head prosecutor. Then you have another one similar. And then he goes out and he quits because the head of the office, who I respected, but then he went bad because he, he came to pressure. But the head of the office said, no, we can't get him on anything. He didn't do anything wrong. Changed his mind a little bit on a couple of little things, but that's okay. But he was under a great deal of pressure. Now I understand that he's made up his mind and he agrees with his original feeling that we did nothing wrong. Like, people were saying, again, he's ranting about prosecutors, he's going back to the Clinton days, it's about brag and all of that. There was somebody saying, like, imagine you're coming, you want bread and butter issues, right? You want to know, like, like I want a tax cut, I want... Um, this thing is happening in, in you know, my child's school. Uh, my, I'm worried about the future of my industry. Uh, there's no jobs for young people in my town. These are things that, frankly, Republicans have no answer for, except to be racist and, and to screw the poor. But at the very least, you could use, you know, you could pretend to care, right? Like, if they want actual answers to that, they should go to, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or what have you and get real answers. But, you know, if they, Donald Trump isn't even pretending to care about policy. The vast majority of this speech was about his own legal troubles. And when it wasn't, and I didn't show you everything because I'm not going to show you the entire like two-hour speech or whatever, it was about attacking DeSantis. And so when he talked about policy, it was always in the sense to bludgeon Ron DeSantis. And therefore, it's not even sincere what Trump, Trump believes or not. He just takes the things that he knows Ron DeSantis believes, which are unpopular, and trashes those things, like Social Security cuts. When we know Donald Trump would cut Social Security if he had the opportunity because uh, his donors would want it and he could pass along the savings to the rich and wealthy and well-connected. This was one of the weakest Trump crowds ever. Not the smallest ever, but a small crowd. But people were leaving early and they were sick of it. You could, you could, you could feel the silence. And in a thing like this, you, you express your, your, your disapproval. You, 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 the silence is deafening. The silence may have well been a chorus of boos because Donald Trump usually gets raucous support from his crowds. And so long as he keeps doing this, they're not going to buy it anymore. Far out. Thanks for k Kitty, no. 
Let's see here. Ancient history. Oh yes, I mean early. This recording is brought to you by Ancient History Encyclopedia and the YouTube channel The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Enuma Elish, the Babylonian Epic of Creation, full text. Written by Joshua J. Mark. Narrated by D.W. Draft. The Enuma Elish, also known as the Seven Tablets of Creation, is the Mesopotamian creation myth whose title is derived from the opening lines of the piece, When on High. All of the tablets containing the myth, found at Ashur, Kish, Ashur Banapal's library at Nineveh, Sultan Tepe, and other excavated sites, date to circa 1200 BCE but their colophons indicate that these are all copies of a much older version of the myth, dating from long before the fall of Sumer in circa 1750 BCE. As Marduk, the champion of the young gods in their war against Tiamat, is of Babylonian origin, the Sumerian Ea Enki, or Enlil, is thought to have played the major role in the original version of the story. The copy found at Ashur has the god Ashur in the main role, as was the custom of the cities of Mesopotamia. The god of each city was always considered the best and most powerful. Marduk, the god of Babylon, only figures as prominently as he does in the story, because most of the copies found are from Babylonian scribes. Even so, Ea does still play an important part in the Babylonian version of the Enuma Elish by creating human beings. Summary of the story The story, one of the oldest if not the oldest in the world, concerns the birth of the gods and the creation of the universe and human beings. In the beginning, there was only undifferentiated water swirling in chaos. Out of this swirl, the water is divided into sweet, fresh water, known as the god Apsu, and salty, bitter water, the goddess Tiamat. Once differentiated, the union of these two entities gave birth to the younger gods. These young gods, however, were extremely loud, troubling the sleep of Apsu at night and distracting him from his work by day. Upon the advice of his vizier, Mumu, Apsu decides to kill the younger gods. Tiamat, hearing of their plan, warns her eldest son Enki, sometimes Ea, and he puts Apsu to sleep 
and kills him. From Apsu's remains, Enki creates his home. Tiamat, once the supporter of the younger gods, now is enraged that they have killed her mate. She consults with the god Kungu, who advises her to make war on the younger gods. Tiamat rewards Kungu with the Tablets of Destiny, which legitimize the rule of a god and control the fates, and he wears them proudly as a breastplate. With Kungu as her champion, Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and creates eleven horrible monsters to destroy her children. Thea, Enki, and the younger gods fight against Tiamat futilely, until from among them emerges the champion Marduk, who swears he will defeat Tiamat. Marduk defeats Kuingu and kills Tiamat by shooting her with an arrow which splits her in two. From her eyes flow the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Out of Tiamat's corpse, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth. He appoints gods to various duties and binds Tiamat's eleven creatures to his feet as trophies, to much adulation from the other gods, before setting their images in his new home. He also takes the Tablets of Destiny from Kuingu, thus legitimizing his reign. After the gods have finished praising him for his great victory and the art of his creation, Marduk consults with the god Ea, the god of wisdom, and decides to create human beings from the remains of whichever of the gods instigated Tiamat to war. Kuingu is charged as guilty and killed, and from his blood, Ea creates Lulu, the first man, to be a helper to the gods in their eternal task of maintaining order and keeping chaos at bay. As the poem phrases it, Ea created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods, and set the gods free. Following this, Marduk arranged the organization of the netherworld, and distributed the gods to their appointed station. The poem ends in Tablet 7, with long praise of Marduk for his accomplishments. Commentary The Enuma Elish would later be the inspiration for the Hebrew scribes, who created the text now known as the Biblical Book of Genesis. Prior to the 19th century CE, the Bible was considered the oldest book in the world, and its narratives were thought to be completely original. In the mid-19th century CE, however, European museums, as well as academic and religious institutions, sponsored excavations in Mesopotamia to find physical evidence for historical corroboration of the stories in the Bible. These excavations found quite the opposite, however, in that once cuneiform was translated, it was understood that a number of biblical narratives were Mesopotamian in origin. Famous stories such as the Fall of Man and the Great Flood were originally conceived and written down in Sumer, translated and modified later in Babylon, and reworked by the Assyrians before they were used by the Hebrew scribes for the versions which appear in the Bible. Although the basic paradigm of the biblical narratives and the Mesopotamian stories align closely, there are still significant differences, as noted by scholar Stephen Bertman. 
Both Genesis and Enuma Elish are religious texts which detail and celebrate cultural origins. Genesis describes the origin and founding of the Jewish people under the guidance of the Lord. Enuma Elish recounts the origin and founding of Babylon under the leadership of the god Marduk. Contained in each work is a story of how the cosmos and man were created. Each work begins by describing the watery chaos, the primeval darkness that once filled the universe. Then light is created to replace the darkness. Afterward, the heavens are made, and in them heavenly bodies are placed. Finally, man is created. These similarities notwithstanding, the two accounts are more different than alike. In revising the Mesopotamian creation story for their own ends, the Hebrew scribes tightened the narrative and the focus, but retained the concept of the all-powerful deity who brings order from chaos. Marduk, in the Enuma Elish, establishes the recognizable order of the world just as God does in the Genesis thing. And human beings are expected to recognize this great gift and honor the deity through service. In Mesopotamia, in fact, it was thought that humans were co-workers with the gods to maintain the gift of creation and keep the forces of chaos at bay. The Enuma Elish in Babylon Marduk gained prominence in Babylon during the reign of Hammurabi, 1792-1750 BCE, and superseded the popular goddess Inanna in worship. During Hammurabi's reign, in fact, a number of previously popular female deities were replaced by male gods. The Enuma Elish, praising Marduk as the most powerful of all the gods, therefore became increasingly popular as the god himself rose in prominence and his city of Babylon grew in power. Scholar Jeremy Black writes, The rise of the cult of Marduk is closely connected with the political rise of Babylon from city-state to the capital of an empire. From the Kassite period, Marduk became more and more important until it was possible for the author of the Babylonian Epic of Creation to maintain that not only was Marduk king of all the gods, but that many of the latter were no more than aspects of his persona. The Enuma Elish was read and recited widely throughout Mesopotamia, but was especially important at the New Year festival in Babylon. During this festival, the statue of Marduk would be taken from the temple and, amidst the revelers, was paraded through the streets of the city, out the gates, to vacation in a small house built for this purpose. The Enuma Elish, especially, it is thought, the praise from Tablet 7, would be sung or chanted during this procession. The Text of Enuma Elish the following translation comes from Mesopotamian Creation Stories by W.G. Lambert and is used under Creative Commons license from the Etana website.
Enuma Elish, the Babylonian Epic of Creation. Tablet 1 When the heavens above did not exist, and earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter, and Demiurge Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together, before meadowland had coalesced and reedbed was to be found, when not one of the gods had been formed, or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed. The gods were created within them. Lachmu and Lachamu were formed and came into being. While they grew and increased in stature, Anshar and Kishar, who excelled them, were created. They prolonged their days, they multiplied their years. Anu, their son, could rival his father's. Anu, the son, equaled Anshar, and Anu begat Nudimut, his own equal. Nudimut was the champion among his fathers, profoundly discerning. Why? of robust strength, very much stronger than his father's begetter, Anshar. He had no rival among the gods, his brothers. The divine brothers came together. Their clamor got loud, throwing Tiamat into a turmoil. They jarred the nerves of Tiamat, and by their dancing they spread alarm in Andalunia. Apsu did not diminish their clamor and Tiamat was silent when confronted with them. Their conduct was displeasing to her, yet though their behavior was not good, she wished to spare them. Thereupon Apsu, the begetter of the great gods, called Mumu, his vizier, and addressed him. Vizier Mumu, who gratifies my pleasure, come, let us go to Tiamat. They went and sat, facing Tiamat as they conferred about the gods, their sons. Apsu opened his mouth and addressed Tiamat. Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life, that silence may reign and we may sleep. When Tiamat heard this, she raged and cried out to her spouse. She cried in distress, fuming within herself, she grieved over the thought of evil. How can we destroy what we have given birth to? Though their behavior causes distress, let us tighten discipline graciously. Mumu spoke up with counsel for Apsu, as from a rebellious vizier was the counsel of his Mumu. Destroy, my father, that lawless way of life, that you may rest in the daytime and sleep by night. Apsu was pleased with him. His face beamed because he had plotted evil against the gods, his sons. Mumu put his arms around Apsu's neck. He sat on his knees, kissing him. What they plotted in their gathering was reported to the gods, their sons. The gods heard it and were frantic. They were overcome with silence and sat quietly. Ea, who excels in knowledge, the skilled and learned. Ea, who knows everything, perceived their tricks. He fashioned it and made it to be all-embracing. He executed it skillfully as supreme. 
his pure incantation. He recited it and set it on the waters. He poured sleep upon him as he was slumbering deeply. He put Apsu to slumber as he poured out sleep. And Mumu, the counselor, was breathless with agitation. He split Apsu's sinews, ripped off his crown, carried away his aura, and put it on himself. He bound Apsu and killed him. Mumu he confined and handled roughly. He set his dwelling upon Apsu and laid hold on Mumu, keeping the nose rope in his hand. After Ea had bound and slain his enemies, had achieved victory over his foes, he rested quietly in his chamber. He called it Apsu, whose shrines he appointed. Then he founded his living quarters within it, and Ea and Damkina, his wife, sat in splendor. In the chamber of the destinies, the room of the archetypes, the wisest of the wise, the sage of the gods, Be'el, was conceived. In Apsu was Marduk born. In pure Apsu was Marduk born. Ea, his father, begat him. Damkina, his mother, bore him. He sucked the breasts of goddesses. A nurse reared him and filled him with terror. His figure was well developed. The glance of his eyes was dazzling. His growth was manly. He was mighty from the beginning. Anu, his father's begetter, saw him. He exulted and smiled, his heart filled with joy. Anu rendered him perfect. His divinity was remarkable, and he became very lofty, excelling them in his attributes. His members were incomprehensibly wonderful, incapable of being grasped with the mind, hard even to look on. Four were his eyes, four his ears. Flame shot forth as he moved his lips. His four ears grew large, and his eyes likewise took in everything. His figure was lofty and superior in comparison with the gods. His limbs were surpassing. His nature was superior. Mariutu, Mariutu, the sun, the sun god, the sun god of the gods. He was clothed with the aura of the ten gods. So exalted was his strength. The fifty dreads were loaded upon him. Anu formed and gave birth to the four winds. He delivered them to him. My son, let them whirl. He formed dust and set a hurricane to drive it. He made a wave to bring consternation on Tiamat. Tiamat was confounded. Day and night she was frantic. The gods took no rest. They, in their minds, they plotted evil and addressed their mother, Tiamat. When Apsu, your spouse, was killed, you did not go at his side, but sat quietly. The four dreadful winds have been fashioned to throw you into confusion, and we cannot sleep. You gave no thought to Apsu, your spouse, nor to Mumu, who is a prisoner. Now you sit alone. Henceforth you will be in frantic consternation, and as for us who cannot rest, you do not love us. Consider our burden. Our eyes are hollow. Break the immovable yoke, that we may sleep. Make battle, avenge them. Reduce to nothingness. Tiamat heard, 
The speech pleased her. She said, Let us make demons, as you have advised. The gods assembled within her. They conceived evil against the gods, their begetters. They, and took the side of Tiamat. Fiercely plotting, unresting by night and day, lusting for battle, raging, storming, they set up a host to bring about conflict. Mother Hugur, who forms everything, supplied irresistible weapons and gave birth to giant serpents. They had sharp teeth. They were merciless. With poison instead of blood, she filled their bodies. She clothed the fearful monsters with dread. She loaded them with an aura and made them godlike. She said, Let their onlooker feebly perish. May they constantly leap forward and never retire. She created the Hydra, the dragon, the hairy hero, the great demon, the savage dog, and the scorpion man, fierce demons, the fishman, and the bullman, carriers of merciless weapons, fearless in the face of battle. Her commands were tremendous, not to be resisted. Although she made eleven of that kind, among the gods her sons, whom she constituted her host, she exalted Chingu, and magnified him among them. The leadership of the army, the direction of the host, the bearing of weapons, campaigning, the mobilization of conflict, the chief executive power of battle, supreme command. She entrusted to him and set him on a throne. I have cast the spell for you and exalted you in the host of the gods. I have delivered to you the rule of all the gods. You are indeed exalted, my spouse. You are renowned. Let your commands prevail over all the Anunnaki. She gave him the Tablet of Destinies and fastened it to his breast, saying, Your order may not be changed. Let the utterance of your mouth be firm. After Chingu was elevated and had acquired the power of Anu-ship, he decreed the destinies for the gods, her son. May the utterance of your mouths subdue the fire god. May your poison by its accumulation put down aggression. Tablet 2 Thiamat gathered together her creation and organized battle against the gods, her offspring. Henceforth Tiamat plotted evil because of Apsu. It became known to Ea that she had arranged the conflict. Ea heard this matter. He lapsed into silence in his chamber and sat motionless. After he had reflected and his anger had subsided, he directed his steps to Anshar, his father. He entered the presence of the father of his begetter, Anshar, and related to him all of Tiamat's plotting. My father, Tiamat, our mother, has conceived a hatred for us. She has established a host in her savage fury. All the gods have turned to her. Even those you begat also take her side. They and took the side of Tiamat, fiercely plotting, unresting by night and day, lusting for battle, raging, storming. They set up a host to bring about conflict. Mother Huber, who forms everything, supplied irresistible weapons and gave birth to giant serpents. They had sharp teeth. 
They were merciless. With poison instead of blood she filled their bodies. She clothed the fearful monsters with dread. She loaded them with an aura and made them godlike. She said, let their onlooker feebly perish. May they constantly leap forward and never retire. She created the Hydra, the dragon, the hairy hero, the great demon, the savage dog, and the scorpion man, fierce demons, the fish man, and the bull man, carriers of merciless weapons, fearless in the face of battle. Her commands were tremendous, not to be resisted. Although she made eleven of that kind among the gods her sons whom she constituted her host, she exalted Chingu and magnified him among them. The leadership of the army, the direction of the host, the bearing of weapons, campaigning, the mobilization of conflict, the chief executive power of battle, supreme command, she entrusted to him and set him on a throne. I have cast the spell for you and exalted you in the host of the gods. I have delivered to you the rule of all the gods. You are indeed exalted, my spouse. You are renowned. Let your commands prevail over all the Anunnaki. She gave him the Tablet of Destinies and fastened it to his breast, saying, Your order may not be changed. Let the utterance of your mouth be firm. After Chingu was elevated and had acquired the power of Anuship, he decreed the destinies for the gods her sons. May the utterance of your mouths subdue the fire god. May your poison by its accumulation put down aggression. And your herd. The matter was profoundly disturbing. He cried, Whoa, and bit his lip. His heart was in fury. His mind could not be calmed. Over Ea, his son, his cry was faltering. My son, you who provoked the war, take responsibility for whatever you alone have done. You set out and killed Apsu. And as for Tiamat, whom you made furious, where is her equal? The gatherer of counsel, the learned prince, the creator of wisdom, the god Nudimut, with soothing words and calming utterance, gently answered his father, Anshar. My father, deep mind, who decrees destiny, who has the power to bring into being and destroy, Anshar, deep mind, who decrees destiny, who has the power to bring into being and to destroy, I want to say something to you. Calm down for me for a moment, and consider that I performed a helpful deed. Before I killed Apsu, who could have seen the present situation? Before I quickly made an end of him, what were the circumstances were I to destroy him? Anshar heard. The words pleased him. His heart relaxed to speak to Ea. My son, your deeds are fitting for a god. You are capable of a fierce, unequaled blow. Ea, your deeds are fitting for a god. You are capable of a fierce, unequaled blow. Go before Tiamat and appease her attack, her fury with your incantation. He heard the speech of Anshar, his father. He took the road to her, proceeded on the route to her. He went. He perceived the tricks of Tiamat. He stopped, silent, and turned back. He entered the presence of Anshar, the father who begat him. 
penitently addressing him. My father, Tiamat's deeds are too much for me. I perceived her planning, but my incantation was not equal to it. Her strength is mighty. She is full of dread. She is altogether very strong. No one can go against her. Her very loud noise does not diminish. I became afraid of her cry and turned back. My father, do not lose hope. Send another person against her. Though a woman's strength is very great, it is not equal to a man's. Disband her cohorts. Break up her plans before she lays her hands on us. Anselm lapsed into silence, staring at the ground. He nodded to Ea, shaking his head. The Igigi and all the Anunnaki had assembled. They sat in tight-lipped silence. No god would go to face, would go out against Tiamat. Yet the Lord Anshar, the father of the great gods, was angry in his heart and did not summon anyone. A mighty son, the avenger of his father, he who hastens to war, the warrior Marduk. Ea summoned him to his private chamber to explain to him his plans. Marduk, give counsel. Listen to your father. You are my son who gives me pleasure. Bow reverently before Anshar. Speak, take your stand. Appease him with your glance. Ba'el rejoiced at his father's words. He drew near and stood in the presence of Anshar. Anshar saw him, his heart filled with satisfaction. He kissed his lips and removed his fear. My father, do not hold your peace, but speak forth. I will go and fulfill your desires. Anshar, do not hold your peace, but speak forth. I will go and fulfill your desires. Which man has drawn up his battle array against you? And will Tiamat, who is a woman, attack you with her weapons? My father, beget her. Rejoice and be glad. Soon you will tread on the neck of Tiamat. Anshar, beget her. Rejoice and be glad. Soon you will tread on the neck of Tiamat. Go, my son conversant with all knowledge. Appease Tiamat with your pure spell. Drive the storm chariot without delay, and with a which cannot be repelled, turn her back. Baal rejoiced at his father's words. With glad heart he addressed his father. Lord of the gods, destiny of the great gods, if I should become your avenger, if I should bind Tiamat and preserve you, Convene an assembly and proclaim for me an exalted destiny. Sit, all of you, in Upshuk Kenaku with gladness, and let me, with my utterance, decree destinies instead of you. Whatever I instigate must not be changed, nor may my command be nullified or altered. Ask your health care provider about Rebelsis today. Tablet 3. Anshar opened his mouth and addressed Kaka, his vizier. Vizier Kaka, who gratifies my pleasure, I will send you to Lakmu and Laamu. You are skilled in making inquiry, learned in address. Have the gods my fathers brought to my presence. Let all the gods be brought. Let them confer as they sit at table. Let them eat grain. Let them drink ale. 
Let them decree the destiny for Marduk, their avenger. Go, be gone, Kaka. Stand before them and repeat to them all that I tell you. Anshar, your son, has sent me, and I am to explain his plans. I sent Anu, but he could not face her. Brudimut took fright and retired. Marduk, the sage of the gods, your son, has come forward. He has determined to meet Tiamat. He has spoken to me and said, Quickly, decree your destiny for him without delay, that he may go and face your powerful enemy. Kaka went. He directed his steps to Lahmu and Lahamu, the gods his fathers. He prostrated himself. He kissed the ground before them. He got up, saying to them he stood. When Lahaha and Lahamu heard, they cried aloud. All the Igiji moaned in distress. What has gone wrong? That she took this decision about us. We did not know what Tiamat was doing. All the great gods who decreed destinies gathered as they went. They entered the presence of Anshar, and they became filled with joy. They kissed one another as they... in the assembly. They conferred as they sat at table. They ate grain. They drank ale. They strained the sweet liquor through their straws. As they drank beer and felt good, they became quite carefree. Their mood was merry, and they decreed the fate for Marduk, their avenger. Tablet 4 They set a lordly dais for him, and he took his seat before his fathers to receive kingship. They said, You are the most honored among the great gods. Your destiny is unequaled. Your command is like honors. Marduk, you are the most honored among the great gods. Your destiny is unequaled. Your command is like Anu's. Henceforth your order will not be annulled. It is in your power to exalt and abase. Your utterance is sure. Your command cannot be rebelled against. None of the gods will transgress the line you draw. Shrines for all the gods needs provisioning, that you may be established where their sanctuaries are. You are Marduk, our avenger. We have given you kingship over the sum of the whole universe. Take your seat in the assembly. Let your word be exalted. Let your weapons not miss the mark, but may they slay your enemies. Baal, spare him who trusts in you, but destroy the god who set his mind on evil. They set a constellation in the middle and addressed Marduk, their son. Your destiny, Baal, is superior to that of all the gods. Command and bring about annihilation and recreation. Let the constellation disappear at your utterance. With a second command, let the constellation reappear. He gave the command, and the constellation disappeared. With a second command, the constellation came into being again. When the gods his fathers saw the effect of his utterance, they rejoiced and offered congratulation. Marduk is the king. They addressed to him a mace, a throne, and a rod. They gave him an irresistible weapon that overwhelms the foe. They said, Go, cut Tiamat's throat, and let the winds bear up her blood to get the news. 
the gods, his fathers, decreed the destiny of Baal, set him on the road, the way of prosperity and success. He fashioned a bow and made it his weapon. He set an arrow in place, put the bowstring on. He took up his club and held it in his right hand. His bow and quiver he hung at his side. He placed lightning before him and filled his body with tongues of flame. He made a net to enmesh the entrails of Tiamat and stationed the four wings that no part of her escape. The south wind, the north wind, the east wind, the west wind. He put beside his net winds given by his father, Anu. He fashioned the evil wind, the dust storm, tempest, the fourfold wind, the sevenfold wind, the chaos-spreading wind, the wind. He set out the seven winds that he had fashioned, and they took their stand behind him to harass Tiamat's entrails. Baal took up the storm flood, his great weapon. He rode the fearful chariot of the irresistible storm. Four steeds he yoked to it, and harnessed them to it, the destroyer, the merciless, the tranquil, the fleet. Their lips were parted, their teeth bore venom. They were strangers to weariness, trained to sweep forward. At his right hand he stationed raging battle and strife. On the left, conflict that overwhelms a united battle array. He was clad in a tunic, a fearful coat of mail, and on his head he wore an aura of terror. Baal proceeded and set out on his way. He set his face toward the raging Tiamat. In his lips he held a spell. He grasped a plant to counter poison in his hand. Thereupon they milled around him. The gods milled around him. The gods, his fathers, milled around him. The gods milled around him. Baal drew near, surveying the maw of Tiamat. He observed the tricks of Chingu, her spouse. As he looked, he lost his nerve. His determination went, and he faltered. His divine aides, who were marching at his side, saw the warrior, the foremost, and their vision became dim. Tiamat cast her spell without turning her neck. In her lips she held untruth and lies. In there they have assembled by you. Baal lifted up the storm flood, his great weapon, and whipped these words through it at the raging Tiamat. Why are you aggressive and arrogant and strive to provoke battle? The younger generation have shouted, outraging their elders, but you, your mother, hold pity in contempt. Chingu you have named to be your spouse, and you have improperly appointed him to the rank of Anushiv. Against Anshar, king of the gods, you have stirred up trouble. And against the gods, my fathers, your trouble is established. Deploy your troops, gird on your weapons. You and I will take our stand and do battle. When Tiamat heard this, she went insane and lost her reason. Tiamat cried aloud and fiercely. All her lower members trembled beneath her. She was reciting an incantation kept reciting her spell, while the battle gods were sharpening their weapons of war. Tiamat and Marduk, the sage of the gods, came together, joining in strife, drawing near to battle. 
Fael spread out his net and enmeshed her. He let loose the evil wind, the rearguard, in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow it. She let the evil wind in so that she could not close her lips. The fierce winds weighed down her belly. Her inwards were distended, and she opened her mouth wide. He let fly an arrow and pierced her belly. He tore open her entrails and slit her inwards. He bound her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on it. After he had killed Tiamat, the leader, her assembly dispersed, her host scattered. Her divine aides who went beside her in trembling and fear beat a retreat to save their lives. But they were completely surrounded, unable to escape. He bound them and broke their weapons, then they lay enmeshed, sitting in a snow, hiding in corners filled with grief, bearing his punishment held in a prison. The eleven creatures who were laden with fearfulness, the throng of devils who went as grooms at her right hand. He put ropes upon them and bound their arms. Together with their warfare, he trampled them beneath him. Now Chingu, who had risen to power among them, he bound and reckoned with the dead gods. He took from him the tablet of destinies, which was not properly his, sealed it with a seal, and fastened it to his own breast. After the warrior Marduk had bound and slain his enemies, had, the arrogant enemy, had established victory for Anshar over all his foes, had fulfilled the desire of Nudimud. He strengthened his hold on the bound gods and returned to Tiamat, whom he had bound. Baal placed his feet on the lower parts of Tiamat and with his merciless club smashed her skull. He severed her arteries and let the north wind bear up her blood to give the news. His fathers saw it and were blessed and exulted. They brought gifts and presents to him. Baal rested, surveying the corpse. In order to divide the lump by a clever scheme, he split her into two like a dried fish. One half of her he set up and stretched out as the heavens. He stretched the skin and appointed a watch with the instruction not to let her waters escape. He crossed over the heavens, surveyed the celestial parts, and adjusted them to match the Apsu, Nudimid's abode. Baal measured the shape of the Apsu and set up Eshara, a replica of Eshgala. In Eshgala, Eshara, which he had built, and the heavens, he settled in their shrines Anu and Leel, and Ea. Tablet 5 He fashioned heavenly stations for the great gods, and set up constellations, the patterns of the stars. He appointed the year, marked off divisions, and set up three stars each for the twelve months. After he had organized the year, he established the heavenly station of Neberu to fix the stars' intervals that none should transgress or be slothful, he fixed the heavenly stations of Enlil and Ea with it. Gates he opened on both sides, and put strong bolts at the left and the right. He placed the heights of heaven in her Tiamat, 
belly, he created Nanar, entrusting to him the night. He appointed him as the jewel of the night to fix the days, and month by month without ceasing he elevated him with a crown, saying, 